Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people of Métis Nations of Alberta Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. SACPA is thankful, thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we're very happy to have with us uh, Jacqueline Peterson, who will be talking about uh, the provincial cuts to, and the municipal impacts of those cuts. Jacqueline Peterson received her PhD from the University of Toronto in political science in 2020. An expert in municipal finance, her research focuses on multi-level governance, local finance and urban governance in Canada and the US. Jacqueline frequently teaches urban politics and policy at the University of Calgary as a sessional instructor. Her forthcoming book, Multi-level fiscal institutions and the politics of fund funding sustainable urban infrastructure will be pu published in 2022 by McGill Queen's University Press. Prior to entering academia, Jacqueline worked for elected representatives in both Calgary City's Council and the Alberta Legislature. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're very delighted to have you with us, and we very much look forward to your talk. Great. Thanks, Annalise. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking the time to be here today. Uh, I'm joining you actually from just up the road in Brooks. So I want to give a big thank you to SACPA for inviting me to be here today and organizing this event. I'm delighted to be here with you all to discuss my latest research on municipal-provincial relations, which was published in September by the Parkland Institute at the University of Alberta. So the report itself is titled An Unfair Deal, The Impact of Provincial Cuts on Alberta's Municipalities. So today I'll be providing some of the high-level takeaways of the report. As is always the case, there's a lot more detail in the report itself. Um, which we'll be going into today, and I encourage you all to, to read and circulate and find online. So we wanted to publish this report in advance of the municipal elections um, that, as you're all well aware, took place across the province this year in October. So it was our hope to help voters make more informed decisions at the ballot box and understand many of the complexities involved in local governance. We were compelled to write this report and, and release it in advance of Alberta's municipal elections because, you know, quite frankly, cities matter. And I mean, I'm going to actually start off our talk here today with a little bit of a thought experiment. I'm going to ask you, what have you done already today? I know many of you will think, well, I, I haven't really done much, but I ask you, have you had a shower? flush the toilet, made some coffee by plugging um, in your machine into the electricity. I mean, you're all using electricity now. Did you drive anywhere, walk on a sidewalk, stop at a traffic light? Did you take your garbage out to the curb? You know, these are all very day-to-day -day simple things that really define our lives and our quality of lives. They're often things we just take for granted. But these are really distinctly municipal local services and municipal infrastructure that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, we also, of course, use provincial and federal services. I mean, I was listening to CBC this morning and, you know, dropped my son off at a provincial school. But by and large, municipal services, municipal infrastructure really builds the foundations, I believe, of our of our lives. So with that, cities matter. 
municipal elections matter. And the outcomes of these elections have very direct and meaningful consequences on our everyday lives, on the quality and breadth of city services, our tax rates, local jobs, local economy, you know, truly what the future of our cities will look like. But these municipal decisions aren't made by local councils alone. So in fact, provincial policy has direct and and very meaningful impacts on the options available to local governments. And, you know, while many people recognize the role that your local city councils and mayors may have on the changes you see in your cities, I would say much of the public is generally unaware of the critical role played by the province in shaping these decisions. So this is what this report and, and my talk here today really, really tries to do highlight to voters and residents the very real way that provincial policy and most notably recent budgetary decisions made by the current UCP government influence local outcomes and shape the options available to cities. So today I'll be going over some of the key, key findings of this report. And next slide, please. So municipal finance, I mean, dare I say, is not exactly the sexiest of public policy issues. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that people generally don't spend too much time writing their MLAs or losing sleep on the topic. And I think this is largely because municipal finance and budgeting is complex, nuanced, lots of different players. It, it's hard to wrap your head around. So it's gonna be my job here today to change how you think about municipal finance. Um, as a distinctly provincial policy area and get you excited or or at least interested about the real world impacts these policy decisions have on your day-to-day -day lives. So over the, the past spring and summer of this year, I interviewed municipal leaders across Alberta, councillors, mayors, city employees of um, cities and towns of all, all different sizes on the specific impacts provincial policy has in their communities, focusing particularly on the province's impact on local finances. So this can really take two, two forms. The province um, impacts municipal finances through grants and transfer programs, essentially by the payments it sends to municipalities. But the province also impacts municipal finance because it sets the rules on local taxes, fines, revenue, how cities can generate revenue. The rules um, by which cities can generate revenue are essentially set by the province. And there was really one clear message that was reiterated over and over throughout these interviews. And, and that is that specifically over the past few years, cities, towns, rural municipalities across Alberta have really been squeezed, um, which has reduced several sources. The province has reduced several sources of revenue that, that cities and towns have traditionally relied upon. And this has um, very implications for local infrastructure, what cities can build, as well as local services and day-to-day -day operations. So next slide. Um, before I get into some of the specifics, I just uh, want to take a minute on this point and really clearly differentiate between municipal capital budgets and operating budgets. So cities usually um, think of their budgets separately, right? Capital budgets involve infrastructure or the city's kind of physical assets, right? Roads, sewers, a new fire hall, new buses. These expenses are often paid for by a mix of intergovernmental grants, developer levies, and, and also a city's own source revenue, like tax revenue. Um, operating budgets, on the other hand, are the programs and services that municipalities provide on a day-to-day -day basis. So this could be things like fire and police response, um, 311 services, basic road maintenance, snow clearing, luckily no snow clearing today, uh, bus drivers, 
you know, planning, citizen engagement, these sorts of things were all covered in a city's general or operating budget. And these types of expenses are largely paid for by, by local residents, especially through um, property taxes and user fees. So of course they do impact one another in some ways, but they're often considered separate from uh, one another. And, and municipalities do treat these two um, areas separately when, when making budgetary decisions. Um, and I mean, I know many of you are probably well aware of these differences, but they're especially important to understand when talking about municipal finances and the province's impact on municipalities. Um, and here, I mean, I've, I've inserted a, a graph that shows, you know, of all the transfers that were sent to uh, the city of Lethbridge in 2019, it shows how the majority of them are uh, for, cap for the capital expenditures. Okay, so this is where I'm going to uh, begin my discussion. I'm going to kind of break it into looking first at capital, then at operating. So we can move to the next slide. You don't mind? Thank you. Um, so I'll start by looking at the province's impact on municipal infrastructure or our city's capital budgets, um, especially because this is the area that receives most uh, provincial funding. So the most recent 2021 provincial budget outlines some significant decreases in infrastructure funding to Alberta's municipalities over the next several years. So the Municipal Sustainability Initiative, or as, as we call it in municipal finance, MSI, is the province's largest capital grant program to municipalities. Municipalities have really relied extensively on this fund over the past several years. Um, it was originally conceived as a 10-year, uh, $11.3 billion program, right? A, a lot of money. Um, however, in the latest budget, the MSI program is not only being cut by 330 million, but the funding is also being drawn out two years longer than was originally anticipated. And just to put this into context, one of the people I interviewed, um, Councillor, now Mayor of Calgary, um, Jody Gondek, compared it to you know telling your kid that they would re be receiving a $20 allowance once a week, right? And then on Friday, parents come to the kid and say, you know what, we're actually going to make that $18 and we're not going to give it to you until sometime next week, right? So all of a sudden, um, the child will have to put off what they originally were intending to buy, um, ultimately has less purchasing power, okay? So under the, the previous government, the NDP... Uh, government, the MSI was set to be replaced in 2022 with um, what was called the City Charters Fiscal Framework, okay? And this was an agreement between the province and its two largest cities, Calgary and Edmonton, um, that, that really recognized the larger responsibilities, um, capacities that are really evolving in nature for um, Alberta's largest cities and their need for a more stable, reliable revenue source. And the city charter's fiscal framework included um, a revenue sharing component in it. And I mean, it should also be noted that while this uh, city charter's fiscal framework was finalized in 2018, discussions for this had had began years previously under uh, previous uh, PC governments. Um, so the need for such an arrangement and rethinking municipal revenue sources has really been on the government's radar for a, for a long time. Okay. However, in 2019, the UCP shelved the city charters framework and replaced it instead with uh, what they called the local government fiscal framework, which is now set to begin in 2024. Okay. So not only does the LGFF um, this new framework provides cities with a lower base annual funding. Uh, so originally it was supposed to be $860 million a year, and now it's $722 million a year. But also the revenue sharing component of this framework is substantially reduced. Okay. 
And I mean, just to put, so when we're talking about the MSI being cut $330 million, just to put this into context, um, I mean, I don't have the data for Lethbridge, but Medicine Hats, which I assume is somewhat comparable, its entire capital budget for 2021 was 25 million. Okay, so that's 10% of 330. If we think about Edmonton's entire road maintenance budget, so this includes all the maintenance they do on the city's 10,000 kilometers of roads, it's 160 bridges, um, 113,000 streetlights, interchanges, sidewalks. This is less than 100 million a year, right? So this is all to say that 330 million um, is a lot of money that can go towards a lot of things. And ultimately, when you decrease infrastructure funding, municipalities are having to delay critical infrastructure projects, some of them even indefinitely, right? Um, and it's kind of the same as the allowance analogy. If you're getting less than what you're expecting and over a longer period of time, you're going to have to cut back on your expectations on what you can do with it. Um, and so right now, when when cities are getting squeezed on the infrastructure front, of course, their priorities are for their immediate um, concerns, right? So fixing infrastructure, doing significant repairs on infrastructure that's already there. And they have less capacity to be thinking about the infrastructure that they need to be making as a future investment, right? The infrastructure that's going to help attract talent, families, investment to municipalities, that the investments that will allow cities to grow more sustainably and thoughtfully, um, because these benefits will really be realized further down the road, right? And it's these types of investments that, that I personally worry the most about, especially as we try to attract residents that can literally live anywhere in the world, right? All right, next slide. Okay, so, well, the cuts to infrastructure spending has been the largest and most visible. The province has also taken a number of measures that impact local operating revenues or the revenue cities rely on to provide day-to-day -day services. Um, one of these uh, policy changes that was really highlighted in my interviews were decreases in the municipality's share of police fine revenue. So whenever um, you get a ticket or pay a fine uh, to the police, this revenue is actually shared between the province and municipalities. In the past, uh, municipalities used to retain 73% of fine revenue. And this has now decreased to 60%, which has resulted in a net loss of $37 million. Typically, this money has been earmarked for police budgets, right? So the police, uh, municipal police forces are feeling especially pinched, you know, and having to face deeper cuts as a result of these policy decisions. So again, this is an example, not necessarily of a, a decreased transfer, you know, it's not the, the province cutting back the payments it's giving, but it's changing the rules by which revenue is generated. And then this impacts uh, cities revenue generating uh, capabilities. So another big issue that was raised was a decrease in payments through a program called Grants in Place of Taxes. This program is essentially how the province pays its property tax to municipalities. Okay? So the province doesn't pay a property tax the same that we do. Instead, they have this program in place um, that basically reimburses cities for the services they provide to provincial buildings. Right. So these funds are meant to pay for streets to be cleared in front of provincial properties, um, fire police response, if that was ever needed, sidewalks in front, nearby parks. I mean, the list goes on. So this program, the Grants in Place of Taxes program, decreased from close to 58 million in 2018 
it was almost halved to 30 million in 2021. Okay, so when the province doesn't adequately cover these basic municipal services and pay its share of property taxes, it falls on municipal taxpayers to to pick up the tab, essentially. I mean, this is something that irked uh, mayors and city observers of all stripes that, that I interviewed, um, regardless of their, you know, political inclinations. And this actually has a particular impact on Lethbridge. So next slide, and I'll... Uh, get into that. So Lethbridge provides an especially interesting case in point on this front. So the city of Alberta, or sorry, city of Lethbridge, like many other mid-sized cities in Alberta, is facing tighter budgets as a result of these provincial policy decisions. So Lethbridge has the most nursing homes per capita in Alberta. I don't know how many of you are aware of that. Uh, the province recently made the decision to make these facilities tax exempt, so they no longer have to pay property taxes um, to municipalities. Okay? So this decision was made at the same time that these grants in place of taxes transfers to municipalities were reduced. Right. And again, these uh, transfers are intended to allow cities to compensate or sorry, allow the province to compensate cities uh, for providing basic municipal services. Right. To provincial properties, given that the government of Alberta doesn't pay municipal property taxes. So the city of Lethbridge received close just over half a million dollars less in transfers from this program from the province in 2020 compared to 2018. Even though the city is now servicing more properties that are not paying property taxes, right? And this has resulted in close to a million dollar budget or revenue shortfall. So, and also if you think about it, like many of Lethbridge's uh, retirement homes are in desirable locations, close to parks, amenities. So although residents benefit from a range of municipal services, uh, the province is not uh, fully compensating the city for these services. So this not only squeezes the city's budget, but it really places the tax burden more on other property, property taxpayers as well. So again, Whenever, however, however, operating revenues are squeezed, cities are really forced or placed in the position of having to either cut services, and often this means jobs, or raise taxes in order to cover these reductions in revenue. Okay. Uh, next page. So I'm not going to spend too much uh, time on this slide. But um, in, in this report, I did highlight how some of the specific impacts this was having on Alberta's largest cities. Um, there's a one-page fact sheet for both of them. Um, while there are slight differences between the two, at the end of the day, both of these large cities are looking at receiving about $400 million less than they were originally anticipating by 2024. And then beginning in 2024, they're set to receive 33 million less per year than they were originally anticipating under the city charters framework. Okay. Uh, next slide, thanks. So when discussing these cuts with municipal leaders across Alberta, there were really five key themes or trends that were continuously raised. Okay. The first was that the province really acted more like parents to municipalities over partners. So this has always really been, of course, there's always been a hierarchical relationship between municipalities and the province. And of course, you know, there exists an institutional power imbalance between the two. But that being said, interviewees really noted that there has been quite a deterioration of collaboration and consultation over the past few years. A number of interviewees intimated um, that the province doesn't really seem to get it, right? Meaning that they don't really understand what municipalities do and, 
and don't uh, see why it's so critical to engage with municipalities and collaborate with them in order to achieve shared goals. I mean, one side note I, I, I will raise is that there is um, hope that with the new uh, Minister of Municipal Affairs, uh, Rick McIver, he's a former city councillor in Calgary, so he is more familiar uh, with the challenges cities are facing. And so there was some hope expressed among uh, interviewees that um, there was some kind of cautious optimism on that front. Um, but ultimately, like I will note that this lack of a real partnership mentality really seemed to bother uh, the, these municipal leaders even more so than the decreases in funding they were seeing. So many acknowledge that we're in tough economic times. I mean, hopefully we're on the upswing now, but that now more than ever, and I mean, especially during a pandemic, we need these two levels of government, municipal, provincial, to be coming together to the table, to be seen eye to eye, to be finding creative solutions to our problems. And this just really isn't happening right now. Um, Another thing that came up often in these interviews was that the, the province has oftentimes failed to fully leverage federal funding. So to access federal funding um, geared towards municipalities, most programs require that municipalities, the province and the federal government each pay one third of the project costs. So a third, a third, a third. In my research, a reoccurring theme was that many federal funding opportunities for municipalities from affordable housing to transit um, to, I mean, un until recently, rural broadband have been delayed or unsuccessful due to a lack of uh, provincial partnership and commitment. Um, and I mean, this is especially perhaps ironic considering the ever-present, you know, rhetoric that Alberta isn't getting a fair deal from Ottawa, okay? Um, a third, third point that I wanted to raise was that throughout these interviews, um, people, I was constantly told that, you know, delaying, delayed and inconsistent funding does more than just push back how long it's going to take to do a project, right? So in many cases, it can force cities to absorb really high debt financing and administrative costs, which are invariably set by the province, um, or sorry, which are invariably paid for by, by you, the taxpayers. Um, it's also interesting to note that the, the province actually requires municipalities to set three-year operating and five-year capital budgets. And then when um, these transfers to municipalities are changed, as has been the norm as of late, cities are finding themselves scrambling, having to redo their budget, something that takes a lot of time and a lot of resources. Okay, uh, the fourth point is what I call the municipal ripple effect. And, and that's just to say that provincial decisions in other policy areas invariably impact municipalities somehow, right? Whether it's, um, the pandemic response, cuts to post-secondary institutions, the public workforce, um, all of these decisions, you know, safe consumption sites, uh, addiction, all these, all of these impact local communities and local economies, right? All decisions are ultimately local. I'm a big adherent to that. Okay, and then finally, interviewees really drove home the need to rethink municipal finances and municipal provincial relations and give municipalities the tools they need to properly invest in the future of their communities, particularly in this day and age where people can work really from anywhere, right? Cities are competing globally for talent and a real partnership between cities and the province is needed, if nothing, then for the continued economic prosperity of the province. All right, so uh, next slide, last slide. Um, so why does this matter? I mean, of course, when we published this report in September, our main goal was to arm voters with information that would help them cast their ballots more effectively and mindfully. Um, we hope voters would consider things like the complexity of the dynamics involved and the feasibility of some local candidates' platforms. So, 
as as we're all aware, candidates can make big promises about what they'll do, about what taxes they'll cut, about what efficiencies they may find. But it's critical for voters to know that, that some of these decisions simply aren't theirs alone to make, right? That actions made by the province impact the feasibility of these positions. So, I mean, this is all well and good, but as we know, the elections uh, passed. So why is this something we should be thinking about right now? Really, I, I want to stress here the importance of advocacy and advocating for our cities and municipalities and, and the critical impact that provincial policy has on our municipalities and, by extension, our very quality of life. So I really hope to have shown in this report the importance of investing in our communities and the impact that strong municipal services have on our day-to-day -day lives and our future prosperity. You know, the decisions we make now are not going to only help us attract talent and compete globally, but not making investments now will likely lead to increased costs for our children down the road. So we need to be mindful of this and be aware of the decisions being taken that affect at the provincial level that affect our municipalities. You know, this is not some secondary unimportant policy area. It's in fact central to so many parts of our day-to-day -day lives. And finally, I really hope to have demonstrated in this report that municipal issues are not just the concern of the municipal voter, but the provincial voter as well. Right. So a provincial election will be coming in the next two years. Demand more of your provincial MLAs when it comes to our cities. If you show to them that it's a priority for you, it will become a priority for them. So I think that's that's it for now. But I thank you for your time and I look forward to to our discussion afterwards. Thank you so much. Uh, I've put up your last slide there with uh, the, the name of the report. And um, thank you so much for that presentation. Excellent. Really interesting. Um, I'll go right to the Q&A. Leona Jacobs, uh, read tax exemption status for nursing homes. Clarification. Does this include assisted living facilities and long-term care facilities? Oh, I'm not exactly sure what the specific, um, I, I want to say yes. Sorry, I'm not uh, entirely positive of like the specific um, definitions and, and how that would be delineated. Um, I, in my interview, I was told there's 18. So that uh, 18 large, large ones. So I'm not sure if that would encapsulate all assisted living. I, I would imagine, I would imagine so, but please don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson, who also says it's nice to see a Peterson making a SACPA list, speaker list. Um, are there any indicate indications that the current increase in oil and gas prices, and then in brackets, Alberta's boom and bust economy, will benefit municipalities? Um, well, I mean, if history is any indication, it will benefit uh, municipalities by increasing growth in the province, and it should theoretically make uh, the province um, more willing to increase its transfers and, and revisit some of these things. Um, it really speaks though to the, I mean, as, as an Albertan, all of us were, were no stranger to this kind of boom bust cycle. And I think that municipalities are impacted similar to other policy issue areas as well. So while I think this is potentially positive for municipalities, it brings to light just how um, our, our need to really rethink having an economy and having municipalities financed so heavily um, by provincial discretion and, and by our reliance on, on many of these revenue sources that are really beyond our, our control. And we might choose to look for a more sustainable approach going forward. 
Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Nursing homes, any tax differences for non-profit versus for-profit? Ooh, I don't, I don't know about that. Sorry, you'll have to, uh, I like, I would just speculate that they're like provincially funded nursing homes, but, but I really don't know. That would be interesting to know. Uh, Leona Jacobs, I think you said that Calgary slash Edmonton were consulted with the charter proposal and then in brackets, effective 2022. Were Calgary and Edmonton at least consulted prior to these changes by the current government? Um, it's that was the I did not receive that impression from my interviews that there was not much of a sustained discussion, if if anything, um, of the the changes that were were proposed. You know, the city charter's fiscal framework took a lot of work and time and and manpowers by uh, not just Calgary and Edmonton, but but municipal leaders across the province. I mean, I. Calgary and Edmonton are a central component of it, but it also included, of course, a plan for for the rest of Alberta's municipalities. Um, I think many of of them were taken somewhat aback about were the people that worked on developing this framework by having it kind of shelved is the best way I think to to frame it. It wasn't entirely ripped up, but it's it's essentially not <laughs> in effect. Beth Mundell, is there any movement to tax for-profit senior facilities versus non-for-profit? Oh, I don't know. I mean, this raises a good question. So as, um, as I mentioned, I don't know like the specifics of the, um, the nursing home assisted um, living, like I haven't looked that closely at, at this policy. Um, but I mean, that's a really interesting question, right? I would be really um, curious to know if both nonprofit for profit are um, subjected to the same rules. And, um, and then following whatever that that response is, whether or not that's, that's appropriate. So you raise a good question to which I don't have an answer. Uh, Laura Schultz, what recourses do municipalities have to change funding model? <clears throat> yeah, great question. And thanks for uh, bringing it up. So municipalities themselves do not really have any like legal recourse to introduce their own revenue source or their own tax or their own, you know, in US cities, you often see um, cities themselves will be able to implement their own sales tax. So this is something we can't do in, in Canada. Um, everything basically is done at the provincial level when it comes to changing those municipal revenue tools. One but this raises, I mean, an important part of this discussion, which is um, many of the people I spoke to really um, highlighted the fact, and this is something, again, I didn't touch on in this presentation, but of course, when you pay provincial or sorry, property tax, most of this money, well, all of the money does go to the city, but usually around a third of of those taxes are then transferred on to the province as the quote unquote educational portion of the property tax, right? Um, so many of the people I interviewed with, and I mean, Annalise, if you wanna go back to that slide that has Calgary and Edmonton on it, many of the people I spoke with said, hey, you know what, just let us keep that I'm just All trying to find the slide, sorry. Yes, yeah, oh, seven. Seven. Um, Got it. Just let us keep all of the property tax, right? Let us keep the residential, let us keep this educational, That and then that more than covers the transfers that we receive in return, right? And that way we can make the decisions about what's best for our city, what needs um, and priorities we have, instead of 
being subject to this like fluctuating provincial discretion um, and provincial programs and administrative costs and whatnot, instead of us sending you, so in Calgary's case, this is almost uh, $4 billion, instead of us sending you $4 billion in education property tax, and then you sending us $3.5 billion back in the forms of transfers, let's just let us keep the property tax, you keep the transfers, and um, that would be a lot more of a reliable um, revenue source for cities. So this is one idea that was raised um, quite often throughout throughout the interviews. Right. Um, Mark Goodall, the city determines how much tax I have to pay, not the other way around. What are the legal implications of how the province decides on its own how much tax it will pay to the city for their facilities? Um, sorry, do you mind repeating it? I'm sorry, it was just a long one. Yeah. So the city determines how much tax I have to pay, not the other way around. So what are the legal implications of how the province decides on its own how much tax it will pay to the city for their facilities? Yeah, so again, it goes back to the same point that when it comes to legal implications, it's the province that sets the rules when it comes to municipalities, right? So the province can really do whatever it wants <laughs> uh, when it comes to to how much money it transfers to um, two cities and what taxes it does and doesn't pay, you know, these cities do have, as well as the province, models in place that estimate, you know, given, um, you know, historical tax, uh, tax rates and assessed property values, what, um, what um, should be paid, I guess, to cover any uh, property tax, but but really cities don't have, at least as far as I understand, much of a legal recourse at all. And this is part part of part of the broader challenge, right? Because you can't just if this was you, the the property taxpayer, and you just told the city, well, you know, I actually only want to pay two thirds of my property tax this year. Um, here you go. I mean, the city's not going to let that fly. But unfortunately, the the provinces is not on equal footing with with you or I. So just out of ignorance, what does the city do when I only pay a third of my property tax? What like as a taxpayer? Yeah, what do they do? Like just out of pure ignorance on my part, what what happens? Yeah. I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but I imagine they would take you to court and eventually uh yeah. I, I'm not sure <laughs> down that legal rabbit hole, but the city would have a lot more, you know, legal tools on its hand. I mean, eventually. I mean, th this does happen, right? There are properties that are kind of abandoned, and eventually the city just kind of takes them over and demolishes them or, or what have you. But it it is quite a lengthy process. <laughs> okay. Um Terry Shillington, how well did the previous, and then in brackets, NDP government understand partnership, and that's capitalized, with the municipalities? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I heard, you know, it was interesting. I met with quite a few people from all types of different municipalities across Alberta, some you know, much more conservative areas than others. Um, but kind of across across the board, I heard that when the NDP was first elected, it took them on the municipal file about a year or two to kind of like find their feet, right? And to kind of figure things out. But once, once that happened, um, there was quite a strong... Um, sense of partnership or or at least um, responsiveness, I guess you could say is the right word, to municipalities. So although it did take a little bit of time, um, I think over, I mean, 
there was generally a large consensus that that it was improved or better than it than it currently is. Um, but it it does take some time. And I mean, I think I was I actually met for this for this research with um, the NDP municipal affairs critic Joe Cece, and he was mentioning, you know, out of everybody in all the elected officials in the legislature, only, he wasn't sure if it was two or three, have that municipal local council background, right? Him and Rick McIver, who's now the minister. So when you have so many um, elected provincial representatives that, um, you know, haven't been on a local council or, or are just as fluent with the way that municipalities work, it's easier to kind of just, you know, see them as secondary or just one more um, stakeholder, you know, instead of a partner. So um, it is interesting that there have been certain themes that you've been able to like pull through all of the administrations, but but you definitely did, did see quite a few um, differences as well. Knut Peterson, are municipalities allowed to run money-generating businesses such as solar farms or renewable energy projects, etc.? Uh, yeah, yes. I'm not sure if it depends in terms of like the size of municipality or they might need to have certain legal um, structures in place. But but yes, like for instance, you look at Cal. I'm not sure how it's done in Lethbridge, but. Um, Calgary's Power, Utility, and Max. So this is a wholly owned subsidiary, but it does it does profit, and these revenues are used um, either invested for you know as uh, as we would invest in in savings, um, or they're they're funneled into like the city's general fund as well. Um, especially in the states, you see lots of cities rely really, really heavily on their utility providers for revenue component. Um, especially electricity. I don't think I don't think water is the same. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm not exactly sure, but it would be something to to think more about in terms of their ability to raise revenue. So I'm thinking again, thinking of um, Calgary and Edmonton and their new sports um, facilities that the city is paying for. You can get into some kind of complex um, land financing agreements that basically um, when the value of the um, asset increases, the land surrounding it will increase in value that will then um, go towards property taxes that will allow for future investment. Um, but yeah, I'm not exactly sure if they're a, if cities are, are able, or maybe this is just something that cities are reticent to do because definitely here in Alberta, if you're undertaking a, you know, for-profit venture, there's general consensus that this shouldn't really be in the public domain, right? Like why not just have a, a private company do that unless there are those really inherent public benefits. Next question comes from uh, Ian Hurdle. What level of funding has the city and the province lost out by not participating in the tripartite process? Um, I don't know total, total amounts, but I can give um, a few anecdotes. So in Edmonton, the federal government recently in the last few years announced this one now $2 billion rapid housing initiative. So Edmonton had put, and this isn't even a third, a third, a third, Edmonton had put money aside to um, build these units, uh, supported assisted living. I forget exactly, I want to say 160 units, but that might need to be confirmed. 
Um, the federal money was lined up from this fund and the city was asking the province essentially for, I believe it was $6 million. It wasn't a lot, but just to for the operating expenses of this facility. And that wasn't included in the, the 20, um, 21 budget, which I know really kind of stunned stun Edmonton a bit because they had put forth a lot of money commitments and, and had gotten all those kind of federal agreements in place. So that's, that's not advancing. And I mean, these federal agree, when you look at this, say federal, um, rapid housing initiative, one, $2 billion, it's a lot of money, but it's still a finite amount, right? We're still quote unquote competing with housing projects in, in Eastern Canada and BC. And if we don't have all of our ducks in a row and kind of everyone on the same side, it makes it a lot more difficult for us to build those investments here in Alberta and quote unquote, get on, get our share, right. Of these federal um, dollars. Is it also hindered by party politics? Well, I don't know. I would say it's hindered, but it's probably not bolstered <laughs> or, you know, like encouraged along. I mean, the the recent discussions we've been having with childcare, it's kind of um, outside of, of this municipal realm, although some would argue otherwise, but um, yeah, it is, it is tricky. And I will say that there's not, this doesn't need to be a partisan issue, right? So we've really seen across Canada a very sustained increase in infrastructure funding, particularly for cities, beginning around 2004 and Paul Martin. But even throughout um, the Harper era, they made a lot of advances in terms of like making the gas tax permanent, which is an important uh, federal transfer program for cities and um, initiating a few other large infrastructure programs. So it, uh, yeah, it doesn't need to be an impediment, but I mean, you know, sometimes the reality on the ground is different. And, and I will say that I think that I didn't focus on that so much in this, this report, but I think this is something you see in Canada that really kind of slows down how um, fast projects can advance and, and you know, this back and forth about getting all three parties on side. It's great that we can get investment from other levels of government. Many cities in the States don't have that same luxury, but it kind of draws out the process and, and, and alters the dynamic a bit. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Based on the referendum on equalization, it appears Albertans are unaware of the unleveraged federal funding. Any thoughts on how to increase awareness among Albertans? <laughs> I mean, spread this webinar. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's tricky. Like... Ultimately, the more people we can talk to that that uh, to raise awareness about these very complex dynamics and the way that uh, you know it does funding doesn't just flow one way right from the province to the federal government it comes and goes and from the municipalities to the province as well I know some uh, some municipal politicians were kind of joking well. I don't know if they were joking. <laughs> they might have been talking earnestly, but suggesting when we the province put forth this referendum on equalization, they should also put forth a question on the ref on uh, the referendum about uh, cities getting its fair share, right, from from the province. Um, yeah, I think we just try to really have those those conversations and I think cities themselves are also trying to 
raise awareness and um, bring clarity to to taxpayers and to their residents about, for instance, where your property tax dollars go, right? Um, and different things like that. It, it's it's tricky. Like, I mean, it's kind of a million dollar question, but unfortunately, I think the uh, the equalization question on the on on the referendum was like very loaded and, and it wasn't necessarily a, a te- I think it meant many things to many people and, you know, shaping that whole driving narrative is a whole other kind of bottle of wax. <laughs> our next question comes from Mary Shillington. In preparing your report, did your interview, did you interview provincial cabinet ministers? Um, no, so I reached out to Minister McIver's office, and uh, they considered it, but it, uh, but never ended up getting back to me. Um, it's very difficult. I think one thing that maybe we could all agree on is that municipal affairs is kind of given like the short shrift or whatever the saying is, right? Like. It's not considered one of those um, core ministries like energy or uh, health or education that, that receives the glamour. You know, we, we don't often think about municipal affairs. Most people don't know who the municipal affairs minister is. And um, I think it's often this way in government, too, that it's not really given the uh, the importance that it deserves. So I did reach out to the the Minister of Municipal Affairs. Um, I didn't reach out to other cabinet ministers, although in my other research, I have met with various other people in the um, Alberta government. But um, no, it definitely would have added added value to the report, and I'd be curious in in getting more of their perspective as well on on the rationale behind some of these changes. Our last question comes from Knut Peterson. Have you found any evidence that particular polit- political leanings in municipalities negatively or positively affect its relationship to the government in power? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard to attribute it directly to partisanship, but often um, in my interviews, mayors um, and city councillors of smaller communities, which tend to be more rural communities, would have stronger relationships with their elected officials. And this is often because in smaller communities, they're just more accessible, right? Um, You know who they are, they live in your community, and you often have those kind of like political ties in place beforehand. Um, But then, you know, so I wouldn't want to draw a false equivalency between the fact that rural municipalities and smaller municipalities are more likely to be conservative, and then their MLAs are more likely to be conservative. it was really, I mean, one interesting maybe anecdotal I'll share is, um, so the city of Calgary, always the council always tries to host these like Calgary get togethers with the Calgary MLAs in that city. And one city councilor I was talking to was like, the last time we did this, there's like 24 MLAs in the city. Um, maybe more actually, maybe just 24 UCP or what have you, but um, only three people showed up to this like wine and cheese that they put on. And he was like, how can we really, like we should be advocating for Calgary, like as a team, right? But oftentimes lots of these MLAs don't really see Calgary like as a city and the success of that. And I mean, maybe it's true in Lethbridge or or kind of mid-sized cities as well. Um, it's harder in uh, bigger cities, which tend to elect more NDP, but also there seems to be more of kind of a disconnect between um, those lived relationships that you have in the more rural, more uh, traditionally conservative parts of the province. 
So no clear answer, but lots to speculate on. Excellent. Um, that's it for the queue. Lots of thank yous, Bathman, Dell, or Schultz, can Peterson. Some really informative, uh, really informative information and answer. Many thanks, Jacqueline. Thank you for sharing your research. I've learned a great deal. Thank you, and and so it goes. Um, before we end the session today, do you have a take-home message for our viewers, please? I mean, the main thing I really am trying always to say is that cities matter, municipalities matter, right? We need to be making investments in our city to be building the prosperous, vibrant, inclusive cities of tomorrow. And as much as this is a, a local issue with your local councils, with your mayor, this is also a provincial issue as well. So think about your city when you're thinking about provincial policy and vice versa and um, advocate for your city and get engaged on that front. Lovely. On behalf of SACPA, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a fantastic talk and we learned a lot. And for our viewers, I hope you'll join us next week um, with Alvin Mills, Kindness to Others. A perspective on the addiction crisis in Lethbridge, and we'll see you next week.